This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I am Janice Leibovitz and you are my People of the Book. And I am so happy today to welcome my guest, John Sane. John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be here. And if you are a regular listener, you'll remember that I did actually interview John last year with his previous book that uh, he collaborated with um, Iraj Abadian. I'm always confused about the pronunciation of his name, which was titled Future Next. Yes. Yes. That's right. That, that was a right. year ago. It was that, a little bit over a year ago, but yes, that's right. Yes, that was quite correct. And and in Future Next, you spoke about the fact that the future that we kept talking about and preparing for was here and now. And this new book that you've written is called Who Do We Become? So we're going to be chatting about that today. You had a recent book launch that was extremely successful, very well attended. It was fabulous. So congratulations on that. And Thank you so much. There's, let's start off with, with a couple of quotes that struck me from the beginning of the book, which, which I absolutely loved. And the first one, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to jump around because this one is not the first quote that I liked. It's what we resist persists until we make our peace with it. And that is yes. definitely something that you learned. I mean, this, <laughs> this, was a, this is your, uh, your second pandemic book, let's call it that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So start off by telling me a bit. I mean, obviously I've read the book, but for my listener, tell my listener a little bit about where you were at during the pandemic. If I can just start with saying why I've written the book and then I'll go into the pandemic because I just want to give it some context. Absolutely. Is, you know, I travel around the world. I'm very lucky that my career gets me to travel extensively. And I hear a common theme amongst no matter what country I'm in, amongst the humans I speak to. And most people are anxious, upset, and frustrated, and sometimes even depressed at the pace at which things are changing. And they love complaining about this incredibly fast-changing future. But really, very, very few people are taking the time to do the work, to meet the future at where it needs us to meet it. And I really wanted people to understand that all transformations are tough. All transformations require us, require us to leave the shore familiarity, move into a strange new world before we even get to the other side where momentum again becomes the norm. And where we are as humanity right now is very much in the sad and the strange, the anguish and the abnormal. The world we're in is not what it quite was, and it's not quite what it's going to be as yet either. So the question we need to be asking is, who do we evolve into to meet the future where it needs us to be, rather than complaining that it's moving at such a pace? That's never going to change. So I just wanted people to understand, to take their focus away from complain to create, from survival to recalibration. And so the book is really generally about that. But for me, I was sitting in Dubai and I read about a flu that was coming from China and Italy was going into a shutdown and Spain was about to go into a shutdown. And I thought to myself, what is a shutdown? Like, what is a lockdown? I've never even heard of it. What is that? And they're like, yeah, no, 67 million people aren't allowed to leave their homes in Italy. I was like, what? Excuse me? What are you talking about? It sounds like a like a, uh, it's like an army state of sorts, you know? 
And then I decided to leave Dubai immediately. And the very next day, I, I put everything in storage and came back to my parents' farm. And two days later, the whole world's airport shut down. And really, it was an incredibly harsh reality for me. My business is speaking and doing strategy sessions for organizations around the world. And that came to an absolute halt. And here I was at my family farm in Limpopo with my mom and dad. And that was it. And for the next three to four months, it was just the three of us and the dogs. And it was harsh in many ways. It was lonely in many ways. It was depressing in many ways. There was anguish in my own world. I'm very grateful to be with my parents, but just that my whole career, everything I'd worked for, all my future memories, my future goals and intentions were wiped out, just like the rest of the world, you know? So I wanted to share the sort of personal journey that I went through to give people an inkling that it was okay to be depressed. It was okay to be sad and to mourn and to be sorrowful. But it's also important for us to have gone through those emotions with great care to mourn courageously so that we can develop a post-traumatic growth catalyst to start to evolve into becoming more optimistic about all the change ahead of us. Thank you for that incredible background and in, in insight into to why you wrote this. And, and as you said, like you said, well, lockdown, we didn't, we had no clue, did we? We really had no idea what was heading our way. Um, and yeah. which, which leads me, and as you say, you, you headed back to your parents' farm in, in Mokhubuskloth. Mm. And that's right. And obviously all your bookings were cancelled. Everything was cancelled, which was your entire livelihood, your your entire business came to a screeching halt, which leads me to this yeah. next quote that struck me. And you said that you had nothing external to define, evaluate, and validate your worth. And that struck me because we were always told that we shouldn't look to all these external things to validate ourselves. We should be looking internally for, for validation and, and we should only... <laughs> Um, we should we shouldn't care about all that external yeah. stuff. We yeah. should look, look seek, I mean, seek that worth from ourselves. We shouldn't care about what the external world thinks of us. And and but this really affected you that you had none of this look, I, external stuff to define and, and validate you. You know, I, I read a, I read a quote a while back, and it said, "Anybody who's doing anything or has done anything remarkable for humankind." must have spent a lot of time on them, in them, uh, by themselves, within themselves, in order to be able to come and give that value to the world. So yes, there is a lot of internal work that I do that is done solo. I've done many silent retreats and I've done many sort of shamanic work and I've just done an extensive amount of self-development that often is very lonely. But then to come and share that with the world really allows me to master my topics and to add real value to the world. And so as somebody that speaks at conferences, turning people awake, seeing their facial structures change, seeing them moving from a frown of frustration to a sort of smile of possibility, that human connection that I love so much based on a lot of solo work that I've done. So there is a combo I wasn't prepared to let go of the crowds. I wasn't prepared to let go of the human interactions. I wasn't prepared to let go of me teaching everything that I'd learned, curated and categorized to try and help as many people in the world become optimistic. And when that got taken away from me, 
I didn't know how I was going to react. I, I mean, I didn't even know I was going to get taken away from me. And then when it got taken away from me, it hurt me. You know, it was really a painful process. And I really sunk deep into, a, I mean, I suppose a, a type of depression, you know, and, and not even realizing what it was until really thinking about it in retrospect and realizing that I, Missed desperately that human connection. Absolutely, and I mean, although it wasn't, I mean, we we, did, we felt like that was a personal attack, didn't we? <laughs> yes, <laughs> all of us with our egos, you know. This is all yes. about me. I can't believe yes. this happened to me. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so Absolutely. sad that we all like that. Huh? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's moving true. on, you you then said we cannot change what we are not aware of, and once we are aware, we cannot help but change. And that was a quote from from Sheryl Sandberg that you mm. used, and that's mm. so true. Well, you know the, the the work really, and 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 if we just skip right to the back of the book and the the, the end around the adventure, the real the real work. The real, real work as we evolve into this next phase of humanity is making our unconscious thoughts conscious, is making awareness of what is keeping us stuck to old ways of thinking, what invisible sort of psychological patterning do we carry that keeps us stuck as victims, that keeps us stuck to an old pain or trauma that has created an identity for us that we don't want to let go of. And so, yes, whatever we become aware of, and if we become aware or just do the work to become aware, the next time you choose that process, it's a choice. It doesn't come from an unconscious behavior. And so, yes, my awareness of my loneliness and my awareness of my depression through the process of loss of human engagement is really something massive that I never realized I even was carrying until it was got taken away from me. You mentioned um, when you moved to the, the back of the book here when you said um, when we get to the adventure and everything, you've divided this book up into three sections and part one is anguish that you've got to move through all that anguish, which we had to move through. And then the part two is abnormal and part three is adventure. Mm. Can, um, can I just stop you there? Is that we haven't moved through anguish. The world is angry, not sad. The world didn't go through a process of sadness. People were frustrated that the old world got taken away. And, you know, it's much easier to be angry than to be sad. And so with the point of me starting the book with anguish or with sadness is the fact that we avoid sadness at all costs as human beings. We eat, we take pharmaceuticals, we drink, we, you know, we exercise, we do whatever we can not to be sad. And if we don't process sadness, it manifests as anger. And if you think about the two angriest cultures in the world, and I live in Dubai, and I, and yeah, I mix yeah. with a lot of Arab, Arab you, men. You, you, and, you and were very brave. You were men. very brave in, in putting yes. this out there. Yes, Go on. Yes. Go and, on. And if you think about those cultures, even you know, a lot of men around the world in certain cultures are very angry. And we all think that what's wrong with them? But really, those cultures, very, at the very heart of them, don't allow those men to mourn courageously. Don't allow them to actually be sad. And so we as a humanity, we need to become very clear at the repercussions of us not processing sadness. And just right here in South Africa, so much anger, so much anger. Why? Because the past hasn't been processed. And so for both the African community as well as the old white community, both very angry because both haven't processed their sadness. So you said we should have or could have or must have processed our sadness. And many people haven't. And so 
I use a line in the book called mourning courageously. It's to actually courageously sob, courageously go into that sadness and sit with that sadness. And I use an example of a very dear friend of mine's father, Frank, who passed away and, and yeah, and Sean, my, 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 my very good friend uh, asked me to, to talk at Frank's uh, funeral. And I just, I, you know, Frank was such a massive, massive um, character in all our lives. And him passing was sometimes even a bigger gift because he allowed me to deeply, deeply heal so many other aspects of my life that I didn't mourn. And he triggered and catalyzed me mourning courageously in so many ways. And so I really want people to take sort of stock of where they are in their emotional states. And if they find themselves frustrated and angry and anxious all the time, think about what you haven't processed to end up at this process that you are right now. You are listening right now to People of the Book. I'm Janice Leibovitz. And today my guest is John Sane. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. This is People of the Book. I'm chatting to John Sarno today, and we're talking about his brand new book, Who Do We Become? And John, before the break, I mean, we were talking about um, various quotes that I had, had selected from the book that, that just struck me, that were stand out for me. But let's move on. Something about, there was just so much, I and mean, if you could see my book, it's just, it's a load of highlights and, and post-it notes. And it's, I always take that as a compliment, so thank you. The messier, <laughs> uh, the, messier the more it, of a compliment. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's quite, it's, it's full of orange and yellow and lots of stuff. But in the second part of the book, when we get to abnormal, and I mean, would you say that we're going through the anguish and the abnormal kind of on parallel? We're going through that all together. Like, is that we're doing that? I think. At the same I think it time? depends. I think it depends on our own personal ability to move through these phases of transformation. Some people get stuck at anguish. You know, they get stuck in that sadness and anger and frustration, and and really don't like the abnormal at all in any way and do everything to avoid it. And other people are already on to adventure. You know, they're already onto the process of understanding that the future is going to be strange. And my ability to meet it at where it needs me to be is requiring me to evolve, to grow my consciousness and to become optimistic about all the strangeness. So I think most of the world is between sad and strange, but there are some people that are already a few steps ahead. So talking about that, so it all works in a cycle, which leads me to ask the question about the concept of the saculum, which you discuss in quite great detail. So let's talk about that because I found that quite interesting, the cycle of human experience. So talk to Um, me about that, about these four turnings. When I was seeing everything implode around me, the first thing I do is I start researching. You know, I want to build context for myself to understand what is going on around us in the world. And I came across a book that was written in 1996, which kind of went unread up until 2008, which, and then it became a bestseller. And then it went unread and then became another bestseller, again, a bestseller in 2020. And this book was written in 1996 by two incredibly smart humans called William Strauss and Neil Howe. And you don't must already know who they are, but all your listeners as well must probably don't know who they are, but we've all used their language multiple, if not hundreds of times in our lives. And they brought out a, a massive sort of, uh, sort of societal changing book called Generations in 1986, I think. And in it, what they described was 
the generational archetypes that we have become so comfortable with. The baby boomers, Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, nobody mm-hmm. had named them before. Nobody had told us that they had different motivating factors. And, and we know this, you know, so think about Mitch McConnell and Greta Thunberg, you know, two humans on the same planet, but totally different generations, totally different ideas of success, different ways of measuring impact in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So these two guys did lots of work around these generations and really changed consumer behavior in many ways. And then in 1996, wrote a book called The Fourth Turning. And in it, what they had done is done further research into the cycles and generations that we go through as humanity. And what they said is, if we have tracked these Saculums. They said that humanity is going through these 80-year, approximately 80-year cycles and has been back to the 1600s. And they tracked these 16, these 80-year cycles back to the 1600s. And what they said was, if we go through another sort of 80-year cycle, what should happen in 2008, remember this book was written in 1996, they said what should happen in 2008 to 2028 is exactly what happened last 20 years of the last 80-year cycle. Now, the last 80 years ended in 1946 with World War II. And what was the lead up to that uh, 1946 World War II was fascism, political divide, job losses, war, and financial crisis. And so if you think about it, from 2008 to 2028, we're exactly repeating the same behavior we did 80 years ago. And so in their book, what they wrote, write about is that humanity is going through these saculums and inside these saculums, what we have is four turnings or four seasons, just like spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And spring is always about something new and how humanity is evolving. And if you think about what happened in the first 20 years post-World War II, humanity went through a renaissance. There was the United Nations, the dollar became the exchange, the rockets got introduced, the space program got introduced, TV got introduced. There was so much newness in humanity. And everybody was about peaceful living, United Nations. And And then we go through summer, which is an awakening. And humanity goes through a process of understanding itself better. And the Woodstock movement around psychedelics, even though some people think it's uh, just a bunch of hippies, but we're starting to realize from the latest research that psychedelics is really helping many people help with depression, PTSD, and all these things that are happening from John Hopkins University, amongst many other universities around the world actually researching it now. But this process really began in that awakening process from 1964 to 1984. There was many other things that happened then as well. But from 1984 to 2008, we had the unraveling. And the unraveling is when many structures that were placed into the world start to unravel. Berlin Wall came down, right. Chinaman Square happened, the Exxon Valdez uh, scenario happened where we started to question business at all costs and catalyze the green movement. Uh, the feminist movement began, really started to pick up momentum. The patriarchy started to unravel, et cetera, et cetera. And so many other things unraveled. And then from 2008 to 2028, we begin the winter or the crisis in this saculum. And in this winter crisis, we have, just like I mentioned, a financial crisis, a political divide, fascism, just like Hitler and, and uh, Mussolini. Yeah. We have the Trumps and the rest. I, I mean, I mean, Trump's funnily quite friendly with Israel, but you have lots of other fascism that's going on around the world uh, with uh, Brexit and Le Pen in France and so many others. And so in this crisis where we are at the moment, and the reason I write about it, and I think it's important for us to keep our sort of focus on it, is that if you wake up every morning hoping that it's spring or summer and it's winter, you're going to be a very miserable human being. But if you wake up every morning understanding where we are in the cycle, 
that we know that the political situation, the financial situation, the job markets, all of these things are in such turmoil and they need to be in turmoil because nothing new can come from an old system. And so we have to see the implosion, the death, the destruction of the old world for something new to be birthed. Unfortunately, we all have to go through this at the moment. It's not an easy process, you know. Everything we once implicitly trusted is now being up for question. And so we still got a few more years to go in the seculum. And I want people to know that it's, look, it's okay that it's going on. But the real trick is, is how are you reskilling yourselves? How are you seeing all this change with opportunity and creation rather than survival and depression? Because there's no choice that this change is going to happen. The only choice we have is how we perceive it. I think also the, like you mentioned here, is that that we need to adapt because we are so aligned with Western culture that prefers a linearity, and whereas the seculum works on circularity. Ah, yes, exactly. Well, I think again, the industrial revolution brought about an idea of addiction to certainty, economies of scale. And efficiencies. This was all about the production line that became a corporational organizational structure. And we are still living with the nine to five clock in, clock out, maximizing profitability through a process of efficiencies. This is all about linear thinking and it has been going on for hundreds of years through the Industrial Revolution. But as we move into this new quantum world, which I call the complex world, in this new complex world, we don't have patterns that repeat themselves. So we can't practice economies of scale and efficiencies because it's a very difficult thing to do in a world that's so dynamic and so fast changing. And so we're finding a lot of organizations that were doing one thing for many, 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 many years with massive levels of efficiency and economies of scale start to top over. And the reason for that is that the market changed and they were only focused on one thing. And so this dynamic way of building organizations in the future becomes a totally different way for us to think about it. And I call this process moving from economies of scale to economies of learning. And it's a very different organizational structure that I'm starting to see form around the world. But I think this also goes back to the difficulty that we have with processing grief because we struggle with it because grief itself is not linear and we want it to be. (laughs) So well said. That's so smart. Absolutely. We should put that in the book. I'm going to get another print, Janice. But yes, exactly. Is that humans, we want quick solutions, you know, and we want to do it quickly. Take a pill and get it out the way. And, and honestly, that, is, that shortcut never works. We know this. I don't know why we, we somehow think when it comes to our psychology, we can just shortcut. There's no shortcut. No. The process is about healing that trauma, becoming okay with the fact that you're human and it's okay to be sad and angry and anguish. If you don't work through them, you never get to a point of really being excited about a complex world ahead of us with so much opportunity if we just get ourselves to become ready for it. Let's move on a little bit and say that while you say in, in your book um, that we value and celebrate our intelligence, and, and we should, but we can't do it at the expense of our intuition. Yes. And you list a whole lot of questions that we need to ask ourselves. And mm. it's all about so much that we don't consider, you know, we're so much about, we're not about empathy. You know, we're not taught, you know, that you should be empathetic and we should be kind. And, you know, there's, there's all this about, oh, we should be teaching our children kindness, but we don't. Mm. Well, look, taught. I mean, you know, kindness, kindness doesn't pay the bills, you know, no. and that's no. why. And so if we teach our kids the best way to survive financially 
so they can have a comfortable life for themselves and their families. And then they can deal with their emotional stuff later. You know what I mean? And I think that's, you know, that's worked not really well, but it's worked, you know, because we have got a somewhat financial stable world and, but with lots of people on Prozac, you know what I mean? And lots of alcohol being sold and a lot of drugs being taken, which means that what we've been focusing on hasn't been an emotional process, but a mental process. Now, the reason I say that we need to move from intelligence to intuition is because we must realize that just like electricity replaced manpower, and for hundreds of years in the agricultural era, we were humans that used manpower, cow power, and horse power that made us successful. And then steam power, coal power, nuclear power, and petrol power arrived and all of a sudden made us redundant in the physical world. And so we had to develop a new skill called intelligence. So we went to school, we learned intelligence and logical thinking and philosophy and all these things we started to learn. And now all of a sudden, we're starting to see that artificial intelligence, technology, data, blockchain, all these things are replacing our analytical minds, our intelligence, our left brain thinking. And we can't compete when it comes to this sort of thing. And we also realize that technology and artificial intelligence is making so many things around us almost free. And if you think about communication, photos, music, entertainment, all these things are free. And so this is going to pervade right into every touch point of our life, from transportation to energy to every other point will start becoming technologically touched, which makes it almost free. So what are we left with as human beings? You know, we can't deal intelligence. We can't compare and compete intelligence to AI. We just can't. So we're left with intuition. And so if you think about the Industrial Revolution, what it required us to do was fit into boxes created by the production line called the industrial revolution and these boxes were called degrees and jobs so you know when you and i were growing up we had a few options you know you could be a doctor a lawyer an accountant an engineer or a failure i mean there was no other option really i mean those were the boxes that you had to fit into but all those boxes now are becoming commoditized all those boxes now automation is starting to get hold of in many different ways and so the industrial revolution asked us to fit in the quantum age we're moving into requires us to fit out And in this space, intuition and your unique flavor becomes your currency of the future because everything around you will be commoditized. Everything around you will be surplus. And so now the only thing that you have is your humanness, is your unique flavor. And so I call this intuition. And it's made up of five things. And we can go into them, but it's made up of five things. One, wisdom, healing your past because wise people never get triggered by their memories. And so we need to have wise people in the world, not more clever people. We have too many clever people. We don't have enough wise people in the world. Then you need, after wisdom, you need to make decisions based on curiosity, fascination, and just a joy of doing something. You know, I don't think any kid has a joy of going to school. You do it because you have to. Right. And so even us, we hated it. I mean, I bunked most, and because (laughs) I was just being forced to do something, I didn't want to do. And then you have the third thing, which is imagination. You know, we have switched off our ability to imagine what's next because it's not logical and imagination is this eerie, fairy thing. And the problem is, is that UNESCO's Future Literacy Program calls this a poverty in reimagination, a mega trend that humanity is going through. We are so keen to hold on to the familiar. We're not even imagining the possible and probable futures that we could move into. And then fourth is experimentations, taking from the thinking to doing to being. Is how are you manifesting in fruition? experimentation of what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And lastly, meditation. 
is that if you're not giving your brain and your neuroscience the ability to move from a high beta analytical brain state to an alpha brain state, which is about collaboration, imagination, and, and, and experimentation, you aren't able to see the world in the way you need to for the next phase of humanity. So really, it's about a, a, a equation that helps us understand what are the skills of the future that are vastly different to the skills of the past. And think about this as a contextual idea, is that if you told people in the agricultural times, they need to be going to offices and doing paperwork where they'll be adding sums of things and doing contracts that would look at you like you were crazy. Like, what would that even add value? How would that even feed my family? But we did it. And so now we're in this next phase. And when I do explain this to people, they always look at me with strange eyes. But that's the process that I have to follow is to try and educate you of what's coming. And if any adults are listening to this, don't try and apply it to yourself. Try and apply it to your kids. Because then it becomes an easier process to understand what your kids require for the future. And then slowly but surely, you can start copying your kids because you'll be competing against them for <laughs> future. <laughs> scary. Scary. Yeah. That's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, but but as you also said, I mean, you said that COVID redefined what work is, and you said that it, it redefined it in a way that work became, became has become what we do. It's not a place that we go to anymore. Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, that's the whole idea around working from anywhere. But really, if you think about what I and, and, and there's something called the passion economy or the creator economy. Last year, it was worth $8 billion. They reckon it's going to double over the next few years. And what it is, it's individuals that are using technology to share their ideas, their services, and their products that they are creating in their individual capacity. And so really, it's not about doing your normal job and then doing it from somewhere else. It's actually changing what you do and how you do it using technology to reach your tribe around the world. So it's, it's layered, you know, and, and I'm not saying anybody must stop working or stop going to school or stop going to university. All I'm saying is because we're in this transition phase, what else are you exposing yourself to while you're doing the stuff that you need to do to pay the bills? What else are you engaging with so you can evolve yourself to meet this future? I mean, all these, you, you name a, a number of roles that you take on. And hang on, I'm just trying to find it. You, these are roles for, for today's leaders and you name them, they, they, all start, they all start with C, the conductor, the catalyst, the coach and the champion. And you added mm. one and you said mm. that there should also be the captain because yes, the captain yes, is, yes. is you, it's us. We are our own brand. And that saying, um, you do you, is, mm. it's, it's very real. It's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, you know, the thing is, is our personal brands are so important, no matter what job you have and no matter who you are, because what's the first thing you do when you meet somebody? You Facebook them, you Instagram them, you, <laughs> you Google stalk them. them. <laughs> you stalk, you them. stalk them, you know? Yeah, exactly. And if you've got an email from my team, we have a, we have a, we have a line underneath our signature that says stalk, and that actually leads you to Instagram. And so, you know, it <laughs> is, it's, that's what we do. And, and so what people say is like, no, I'm not active online. But then you're just not allowing the world to build trust with you, to understand who you are and what you're about. And as we move into this commoditized future, who do we go and spend time with? People we trust. How do we build that trust online? How long did it take for us to build that trust? Years sometimes. So the longer you take to become the captain of your own brand, 
the longer it's going to take for people to trust you, to do work with you, to do business with you, to do service. And people like say, no, I'm shy. I just can't do it. Hey, guy, this is the new world. You can't be shy. You've, yeah. got to, you've got to be able to put yourself out there and to be able to build that brand. So yes, I think as leaders, we have got very, very tough jobs ahead of us because most of the people we're leading are much smarter than us. And you know what makes a person much smarter than somebody else? And access to Google, because not everybody's smart. So now all of a sudden, you've got to be able to engage with young, dynamic variety of people and lead them as a conductor into this future. You don't have to have all the answers. And trust me, if you've got a low EQ, nobody wants to work with you. We're done with bad bosses. We're out of here. We're like, forget about it. We actually tell everybody on social media that you're a bad boss and your brand gets tarnished. So this transparency also is not leading well for bad leaders in any way. And so we have to evolve as human beings to become better leaders, to become part of better teams, and ultimately become captains of our own brands, because that's going to be the currency of the future, without a doubt. For sure, for sure. You are listening to People of the Book, and I'm chatting today to John Sane about his new book, Who Do We Become? I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. I'm Janice Leibovitz, and today I'm talking to John Sane about his book, Who Do We Become? And it's an absolutely fascinating conversation, really. And I hope you've been paying close attention because there's so much to learn here. So a lot of this conversation is about evolving and how we evolve, how what we've learned from the past couple of years. But I want to move on now to education. I mean, what should our kids be learning? Um, I know that that... There's a a big movement towards informal education and experiences and moving away from learning only to achieve certificates, diplomas, pieces of paper, and things like that. But what should our schools be teaching our children? What subjects, how do they go about, you know, I mean, the jobs that they're going to be doing in future haven't even been created yet. And... Hmm. What should they be learning? What should schools be teaching them? Well, you know, I actually do quite a lot of work with Curo. And I love Curo because they asked me to come and instigate into their business because they're doing amazing things, but they're still teaching old processes. And that's because the government requires us to do so. It's almost illegal not to teach those things, right? right? Unfortunately. Ultimately, we all know, yes, but we all know that it's not going to add up to anything fantastic because you can come out of varsity with a degree and another degree and there's no guarantee of any job really quite literally there's no guarantee because maybe that job spec has changed maybe there's technology out there that's shifted so ultimately i don't know if it's for schools to start to uh, teach new things because schools are caught up in a structure a governmental structure which is dated in itself an educational organizational structure that doesn't want to let go of the structure it understands and is familiar with so the question becomes if you can't predict the future The only thing you can manage is your behavior. So as our kids go through the process of schooling, because we don't have a choice but to keep them in there, we have to help them understand how to become adapt, agile, flexible, and really how to unlearn to relearn. And this is a tough, tough thing because as human beings, we've learned this idea that once you learn something, you apply it and you should have success for the rest of your life. And so what that really means is that neurons that fire together, wire together. And inside our brains, the more we do something in repetition over and over and over and over, that becomes our personality and that becomes our skill set. And so what does unlearning mean? It means to unlearn who you are. It means to unlearn the skill set that you had to replace it with a new skill set. It's almost like 
breaking an addiction of being yourself or breaking an addiction of knowing a certain theory of something to evolve it into a new theory and to evolve yourself into somebody new. And that process becomes an incredibly important process because as the world changes at a rapid pace, we have to have the skill of unlearning and relearning. And so for me, your kids at school, we don't, that's going to be a slow boat. And so to us for fighting yeah. the school in those structures, I don't think that's a fight you want to take on. I mean, that's going to change, but it's not a fight you want to take on. The other, the other sort of thing to focus on is adaptability, unlearning and relearning. And I think that should be something for the whole family to do. Because as adults, our neurons have wired and fired together for decades. And for us to unlearn those things, and to relearn new things is even much harder than our kids. But that behavior change, that ability to be truly agile becomes an incredibly important skill set for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which leads me to, to ask you about this concept that you mentioned here of forced entrepreneurship. So, you know, I think we've arrived at an era called the forced, uh, the, the era of forced entrepreneurship. And I don't want people to think entrepreneurship is just having your own business. Because what an entrepreneur is, an entrepreneur is somebody who likes to solve problems with the gift of solving a bigger problem with no loss of enthusiasm. You know, so that says, I am an entrepreneur that seeks discomfort. I enjoy solving things in the process of discomfort with maximum levels of optimism. And so here we are in a society today that seeks comfort at all levels. I've got my degree. I've got my job. I want to keep inside this job. I don't want to change too much. I don't want to rock the boat too much because that's really what seemed to me to be very successful. And so as an entrepreneurial mindset, it's about how do I seek discomfort? How do I evolve at a point where I'm two steps ahead of all the change in the world rather than complaining that all this change is happening because I'm not willing to solve new problems at maximum pace with maximum optimism. So that's what I mean by the era of forced entrepreneurship. Yeah. So also because, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's, it's this open-mindedness and the fact that most of the jobs that our kids are going to be doing years from now haven't even been created yet. They haven't even they haven't even been the concepts haven't even been thought of so i mean i don't yeah, know so what, uh, so go there. what sort of humans yeah but what sort of humans do you want you want people that are optimistic yes you want them to be happy about new job coming and and you know six months later they'll have to change jobs and what do you want them to be optimistic because there's no choice that's like you know you don't have a choice with the pace of things happening you only have a choice of how you want to see it and so the ability to have a psychological powerhouse inside your head of adaptability becomes the only thing to really focus in on. And that's a mix of IQ and EQ. You know? yes. That's almost called AQ. It's adaptability <laughs> quotient. Is how do you build AQ within yourself? It's so important. So, so important. And I, I love this chat. I was just beforehand, before um, this this. Um, this comment on forced entrepreneurship, it's packing your mental bags towards your imagined future. And I love this yes. because um, <laughs> you need you you need what you call hindsight, plain sight, insight, and foresight. That's right. <laughs> so That's it right. sounds you know, like a lot. Uh, yeah, it is. Look, all of this is a lot. Yeah, all it of it is, is a lot. lot. It's a lot. It's, it's a lot. I write about it. I research it. It's a lot. We're asking you to, without mincing the words, just change who you are. Yeah. How hard is that? That's a super hard thing to do, yeah. you know? Yeah. But if we start to understand these tools slowly but surely and engage with them slowly but surely, eventually they'll become second nature. And so realizing that these are the tools we need to be engaging with helps us understand which direction we need to be focused in on. And, you know, I just, you just, I love that line you just said, packing your bags for your future self. It's, this is imagination. Is and, and most of the time I tell people about imagination. Look, I work with corporates and governments around the world. You know, they're not interested in imagination. 
No. But we just want to make more money, right? And so I say to them, like, you know, you guys don't use imagination of what's next. And they're like, no, but we never even use imagination. I said, but you do. Let me ask you this question. If you ever wanted to buy a new car and you start seeing the car everywhere, what does that mean? It means your imagination started to work out a system to start looking for the things that you were thinking about. So you actually are constantly imagining. You're just imagining the same stuff over and over and over rather than use and packing your bags for the future possibilities of where you want to go. And I haven't put this in this book, but we often see sports stars rehearse over and over in their imagination, scoring that goal yeah. or winning that gold medal. But as human beings, why are we not rehearsing how we want to show up, who we want to be, and how we want to react to the world rather than always following the old ways, engaging with the world? We could rehearse new ways. And so this is really the process. It's a mental construct process that we need to be taking on. Absolutely. There, I mean, we, we could really talk for hours about this, but unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time and our time is just about up. But John, I know you said you like to release a new book every year. So yes. um, what's next? You know, I, I have I have an idea about a book called Future Memories and I'm, I'm, it's toying inside my head. And the reason um, it's coming up for me is that our idea of time is starting to change. As human beings, we've always thought of time as very linear. But actually what quantum science is starting to teach us is that there is no time. Actually, time is our own construct. And the best way to describe this, if you're thinking I'm sounding weird, is if you do something you love and, and three hours feels like 10 minutes, Yeah. what happened there? <laughs> what happened there? Like, and if you're in traffic for 30 minutes and it feels like eight hours, what happened there? So our perception of time is starting to change. And so I really want to start to think about how do we build future memories so that we evolve into our future selves rather than always moving back to our familiar self. And that becomes something that we have to train ourselves to do because the world has always required us to follow who we were, not who we should become. Love the sound of that. Can't wait. So, um, okay, get off, get off this call. And <laughs> start writing. Start writing, get researching, get writing, get researching, get researching <laughs> and start writing that. It has been wonderful chatting to you today. And um, this book is really available everywhere. So, no excuses, go out and get it. Who do we become? And really, it's it's fascinating. Lots to learn, lots to unpack, lots to think about, and lots to discuss. So I would really highly recommend that everyone go and buy this book. John Sane, it has been a pleasure having you as my guest today. Thank you so much for your time. My absolute pleasure. And I look forward to being on the next show with you with my next book. <laughs> I look forward to that too. Thank you so much. And to you listening, take care of yourself, take care of each other, love what you do and read a book.